Blog Talk Radio. Funky Writers Show, all about the funk of writing. I'm your host and navigator, Robert Batista. The Funky Writers Show has been called the funky eclectic outlet for all wordsmiths and literati, now celebrating over six years of dynamic Writers Talk Radio. Check out our dynamic Twitter page by going to at the funky writer. Our special guest today is the multi-talented author and storyteller, Tony Lindsay. Welcome, Tony Lindsay, to the Funky Writers Show. <laughs> hey, Robert, thank you so much for having me on, man. It's a pleasure to be here. Tony, Tony, you're my kindred spirits, my man. Uh, I'm just happy to have you on. Tony, you know, like I said, it's so good having you on the Funky Writers Show. Let's start off by you giving our audience some background of your life's journey and how you got to where you are today. Okay. Well, you know, I like to think of it as fluid. I'm still moving in in that direction. But um, oh, yeah. as far as writing, yeah, 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 as far as writing, uh, I started early. You know, I started out writing uh, ghost stories as a kid, and then um, had the very good fortune of meeting Gwendolyn Brooks in about the seventh, eighth grade. Um, her daughter, Nora Blakely, taught at our school. So she would come up there, man. She'd pop up in the lunchroom. We'd see her in the halls. Uh, she came to my eighth grade graduation. And it was fortunate because I saw a writer at a young age, you know. And I would stayed in my mind that, wow, writers could do what they want to do and chill and hang out. I didn't, you know, realize how phenomenally successful she was that allowed her to do that. But that was the, my first image of a writer, somebody who who liked kids, hung around, sat and talked with us. Um, and then later I started reading, and um, like a lot of people, I was uh, really addicted to Donald Goins. I, I, you know, I read all of them, not all. <laughs> I read a lot of Oh, man. Dopeine. Oh, man. Oh, man. Swamp Man. Right, his book. El Dorado Red. <laughs> right, right. You know, so, that's my hero. I, I Like you said, man, That I, we all were weaned on Goins. Not only Goins, but the whole Holloway House genre with Iceberg right. Slim and Goins. And, oh, man, Trista I'm sorry Hines, to interrupt Iceberg you. Slim. Exactly. Uh, um, Dean Farr, you know, uh-huh. all of those early writers. And then even... To some extent, Ann Petrie, because she wrote a book called The Street. So it wasn't like, right, you know, there right, weren't literary exactly. writers who did that same genre. 
you know, that they were, you know. So, uh, you know, you know, reading those and then um probably uh the, the next I went to school and so then I got exposed to Tony Morrison, uh, James Baldwin, Richard Wright, Ralph Ellison, you right. know, more literate more than I get exposed to the poets, the black arts movement poets, Samir Baraka, Hakeem Matabuti, and all of them. Okay, right. all of that was through through my education circle. And then um, on my own, I just started reading, man. And you know, it was fortunate because uh, you know we had that that explosion of writers in the late '80s and '90s that you know people like to call it the post Toni Morrison, I mean the post Terry McMillan era. But you had right. people who were writing before her. You had Gloria Naylor, you know. Right. So there were people who were still doing it. And I was fortunate enough to to be reading. We were popular then. And you go into bookstores and or you would see a bunch of black books. So I read a lot of people. Gloria Naylor, Leon Forrest. And in Chicago, we had some very good black bookstores, you know. Um, right. African American Images, uh, uh, Bass Bookstore. So we had it, you know, it was there. So we can go and get exposure. So it was really cool. And so I, read, I was fortunate enough to read a lot. But I was still writing, but not sending anything off. I think I maybe when I was like about 18, I hand wrote a manuscript and sent it to Third World Press. And. <laughs> Years later, man, um, probably after um, my first book was published, um, I was at an event, and I met Benny Johnson, and uh, we were talking. And he said, man, I remember you sent us a hand, and it just blew me away that he remembered <laughs> that I had sent him a handwritten manuscript, you know. And then uh, he actually published, uh, I, was, I had a book published with Third World Press called Pieces of the Whole, which is probably one of the stellar moments of my, well, not, not probably is, one of the stellar moments of my writing career to be published by that press. You know, Third World Press has such a history, man. You know, oh, yeah. Hakeem, Gloria. I mean, Gloria. Oh, yeah. Right. Oh, yeah, um, definitely. So it was just, you know, being published by that press was, you know, a big, big part of my life, uh, instrumental part. And then, well, the first book published was um, One Dead Preacher and um, Kwame Alexander, now the uh, the award-winning Kwame Alexander, um, at that time, he was Black Words Press, and he published my first book, my first two books, actually. And, um, you know, it was a, I had been sending the thing out like a maniac, which is what I was told to do. And I met Kwame at a Gwendolyn Brooks Writers Conference in Chicago again. And he was like, oh, you got some of your writers, and you even got a manuscript. I had a manuscript for him, and I gave it to him. <laughs> and, he, you know, and then he called me like two weeks later. He's like, well, this one is good, but it's a little bit raw than what I'm looking for. But I heard right. you had another one. He said, I heard you had another one. That just shows you how it was paying off. I sent the thing out to, like, I don't know, man, I, so, so much that the people at the post office knew my name. Hey, Tony. <laughs> <laughs> and so he was talking, and the one I was sending off at that time was One Dead Preacher, and he's like, hey, I want to see that one. So I sent that to him, and he published it. And that was, uh, you know, how I got started, how I got my, my first. And then I've been published by uh, Kwame, Third World Press. I've been published by um, uh, um <laughs> My current publisher is Pen Knife Press. I've also been published by Golden Butterfly, uh, Urban Books, Carl Weber, and uh, Q Barrel Books. So I've been published a lot. Well, not a lot, but to me it's a lot. And I'm currently, you know, still writing. Um, my newest book is Almost Grown, and that was published by uh, Golden Butterfly uh, out of South Carolina, which is uh, where I'll be next week. And so that was uh, that's where that's how I got here. Up oh, and I went back to school and I got an MFA, 
I went to Chicago State and got a Master's of Fine Arts degree in creative writing. And the, the great thing about that program was it was all African-American writers. So wow. what, I didn't, yeah, what I didn't know prior, I got even more information, you know. And so I'm, I'm constantly learning. I, I write now, I write an article for Conversations, um, Conversations Magazine online and the, also the uh, actual print magazine. Uh, and I do a historical writer's piece. I showcase a historical writer. Uh, once every two months I write a piece for him, uh, Cyrus Webb. And I'm really proud of that because it's, you know, it, it it allows me to reach back. I've written about Ralph Ellison. I've written about uh, Rear Baraka. You know, uh, I imagine Maya Angelo. I've written a lot about the people that came before me. I used to have a phrase that he's saying, "We're standing on the shoulders of those who came before us," and that's you know what I do. Um, fortunately. At, when I was at Chicago State, the MFA program, Hakeem Anabudi was the instructor, the lead instructor there. So I was fortunate enough to have classes with him, uh, Dr. Kelly Ellis, you know, Sterling Plump. It was, you know, it was a phenomenal experience, man. Wow. Uh, there's so much meat in, in everything you just told me, and we have so little time, so I'm just going to move on. Uh, but um, So let's talk about your dynamic new piece called mm-hmm. Almost Grown. Now, how did it come about, and where did the seeds of this book germinate in your head? Okay. Um, I had written uh, another young adult piece called uh, Fat from Papa's Head. It was actually my thesis for the MFA program. And I wrote the I wrote the story out of going to the Audi home. I, I was in, in the, the Audi home is a, a um, it's not called the audio. Now it's called a school. It was like our, 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 a correctional facility for juveniles or right. um, a housing facility for foster kids. I was there, and they asked me to come back as an adult, um, and I went. And I was um, talking to the kids, and they were like, we need something to read. You know, we're tired of reading these. I mean, we've got Walter Day Myers, which they, dug, which they dug, but it's like we want something just different. And so I wrote that for them. And um, I took it up there, and... Uh, who published? I think Pinknife Press published that for me. Yeah, Pinknife Press published it for me, and that's how it came to be. But the stories were written for them, and those uh, those kids that I met there, they wanted something to read, and I wrote up. It said, you know, about us, and so I wrote stories about them. I wrote stories that I related to, that hopefully they would, which they did relate to, because I've gotten a lot of uh, people have commented on it back. And so once I started doing that, I wrote more young adult stories, and then I was told that well. Maybe you may want to write something a little more G-rated for a teen audience. Not that those weren't G-rated, but these were just a little bit. Because in some of that story, one of the mothers was a crack, was a, an addicted crack. Right, addict. right, so right. Maybe the stories may have been a little bit too raw for high school. And the lady Golden Butterfly said, Could, "You know, do you have anything? You know, a little bit milder." Well, actually, I had put the story, the collection together, and I called her and said, "Hey, you publishing a doll? How could you publish this teen collection for me?" And she read it and said that she loved it and. That's how it came to be, a golden butterfly. So um, it came out of, I had started writing for young adults already, and I was already on that path. I had been published by Sakata. I don't know if you're familiar with them, but it's a young adult magazine, and they published a piece. And so I would write more stories um, for them, trying to get them published. And before I knew it, I had a, uh, a collection. And I liked it. The stories were so, and I didn't want, them not to be published so I put them together as a collection I presented them and uh, Golden Butterfly took them 
it, it's it's unique because it's broken up. I've, and I follow her directions. She said break it up into sections. So there's one section called teen girls, then teen boys, and then I have right. teen girls and boys. Yeah. So I was really, uh, I'm really happy with the piece. It's probably some of the, it's I know it's the most uh, rated G writing I've ever done. One of my books, uh, Chasing It, was probably, if I'm not mistaken, I think it was the first book in history with a parental advisory sticker. I'm pretty sure it was. And uh, so to write a rated G book is really cool for me. So I know that, um, you know, in these 15 short stories, um, some are for boys, some are for girls, and some are for both, but do all the stories basically have the same theme and message, or are they individualistic time capsules that can each stand on their own merit? Oh, yeah. Hold on for a second. Excuse me. Yeah, I told you I was out cutting grass with a little hay fever. No, no, each story has its own thing. Uh, some have similar themes. Some are... Oh. God bless you. Thank you. And um, keep you. Some are rites, rites of passage tales, but even as a rite of passage genre story, it still has a different theme. Each story has its own theme, and they're not interrelated stories. Each story stands on its own. Each one stands completely on its own. None of them are interrelated. They don't even have the same okay. protagonist. It's just totally different situations. Uh, for example, like Contrary Mary is a story about a young girl who discovers that friendships change. You know, missing is a mystery um, about a uh, a baby that comes missing, and this girl figures out who has it. Scary is a story about uh, people on a school bus, and there's a shooting. Uh, the new stand promise is young love, you know. A lab coat required. This was probably one of the hardest. It's been published, because some of these stories have been published in other in other. Um, Magazines and online, a lab court required actually got published by a uh, publisher in, in London. So many American publishers were like, I can't do it because it's a girl. It, it's a girl on our menstrual, so it, it, it requires you know it, it, it gets a little tripped out, but it's a darn good story, you know. And it took it, I had to go outside the country to get it published, which was funny, because then after the guy in Ireland published, some other people wanted to publish it, and you know, that's, publishing industry is, is a wonderful thing. And then I wrote uh, Teen Boys, which is there's also a mystery, speculative fiction piece. So each one is different. So let's get into the almost grown title. Um, mm-hmm. What's the significance of the title in the overall message of the anthology that you've written? Okay. Uh, the overall message of the Source Story Collection is that um, you're almost grown, you know, and that's what um, I remember being at that phase, um, you know, being a teenager thinking right. I was right. grown but not having any clue as to what being grown actually meant. Being almost grown, it's a difficult time. It's, it's when you think you know, but you don't know. And you do know some things, but it's a time where you still need guidance because you're almost grown. Not yet. Sit down. Take a little guidance. Get a little bit more direction. Well, my father used to always just tell me, slow down, boy. you got a whole life ahead. You know, just slow down. And... Um, what I tried it, what I did with this collection um, was showing kids making decisions, you know, um, and I think that's the best way to teach if you show them that someone else has already done it. So it's right. not preachy. It's not. It's not meant to be a direction or an inspirational life piece. Not, not at all. It's just kids making decisions, and that's uh, almost grown. That's what happens when you're almost grown. You're making decisions. You have to. Slow down, make better decisions, but, hey, take examples. Learn from what you see others do. Learn from your peers. Learn from those who were before you, 
but be open-minded enough to learn and realize that you do have some answers, but you don't have them all. I don't even have them all. You know, and I, I find myself learning from younger people. Of course. Probably the biggest Definitely. learning experience. Probably the biggest learning experience of my life was being a parent. I learned yes. so much from my yeah from my kids. So it was just, you know, you just you have to be. I had to be. Um, realize I don't know everything. You know, not even as a father, as a husband, I, I don't know everything. You know, so. And and kids who are almost grown, that's that's the overall. Message. Hey, you don't know everything yet, but you do know a lot. You know, <clears throat> so each story has different meanings. Got you know, it. Got uh, it. Yep. Got it. So, Tony, let me ask you this, man, and this sounds like this book was a major hit. Tony, what was some of the feedback you received from people who've read Almost Grown? How did the readers respond? Uh, it's like watching a movie, or it was over before I wanted it to be over. Uh, right, right. Uh, uh, did some of them or been... any of them get get a little perturbed because uh, the stories were short and they wanted more? Yeah. Yeah, they were like it was. The stories were too short, uh, uh, but then there were longer pieces in the story. So a, a lot of them were basically um, say it was like a movie. They enjoyed it, but some people appreciated the shortness, especially a lot of the, the kids. A lot of the teenagers right. liked it because it was over in less than two right. pages. Right, and they appreciated the the, the short snippets. Uh, from teachers, I've gotten a lot of thank yous for no profanity because I don't think there's any profanity in it. Um, the librarians, well, one of the one or two librarians that have responded, um, liked it a lot as well. So that's been it, man. I've just been uh, overall, it's been good. I haven't heard any complaints yet, um, and that's been really nice. <laughs> you know, so overall, that, that's always <laughs> if you don't have any complaints, that's always a plus. So I'm going to take it a step further and talk about one review that. I've checked out on Amazon for Almost Grown. It's by a person Mm -hmm. by the name of Grady Harp, and he states, the stories have a great deal of flavor because of the polished gift Tony Lindsay has in writing in the vernacular. He adds pepper and spices in the lingo of the characters without impinging on the flow of his well-rapted stories. Said once, said again, there are a few writers who can create the entire atmosphere of a story, descriptions in place, time, characters, motivations, and street talk, as well as Tony Lindsay. Wow. That review says you've done your job as a writer, doesn't it, Tony? <laughs> yeah, 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 I did. It, it, and, it, it, you know, it, I like I like good like reviews. Uh Grady is like the number one and number two reviewer on Amazon too, so it's always good for him to, uh, you know, give give a piece of good review. Um, but a lot of times, as a writer, what I try to do is just write the best story that I could. I, I slow down. I try to hear. Um, as far as writing in the vernacular, um, I think it was fortunate growing up living the vernacular so thereby I could write it in the vernacular. I don't have to reach you know, I, I still talk like kids I hear on the street. Yeah, they may have some new terminology but we still have the same sentence structure. Cause that's you got that right. The, right, that's the vernacular right. I grew up listening and I may not yeah, they may not say popos now. They may have another name for the cops. I don't know. But the the, <laughs> the same structure of our of our, of our speeching is the same. And that's that was just uh environment and I don't think that has changed. Um uh, fortunately I uh you know, I value it 
some people get an education and no longer value how they spoke prior to their education. That's not, you know, I, I realize that the um, the black English vernacular is an important tool to me as an artist. So I, I don't want to lose it. You know, I don't want to lose it at all. And I think that's what Grady was commenting to. And you know, Tony, I can relate 100% to what you say, living the vernacular. I've also done that. I grew up in Brooklyn in the mm-hmm. projects, and mm-hmm. I also lived the vernacular, and uh, it, it's it's basically flowed in my work also. So I can understand that, and I like that a lot. I'm going to incorporate that, living the vernacular. <laughs> I mean, that definitely, like, it, it stopped me right in my tracks. So uh, mm-hmm. let's talk about Tony Lindsay, the person. Uh, Tony, we know you're out of Chicago, and uh, I know that uh, you probably had a very interesting young life. Were you a conformist, a rebellious child, or a little bit of both? Uh, I don't know, man. Um, at times I conformed. Uh, you know, I, I don't. And at times my, my you rebelled. Childhood... <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> I think my childhood was different um, than a lot of people. Uh, Oh man, um I grew up on the south side. Uh I was uh in the foster care system. Um I had the 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 misfortune of being blessed of uh of being um with the same family probably from 7 to about uh, to adulthood. Um and that's wow. my mother, that was my father, that was my brother, those were my sisters, you know. Um they got a shattered child and they, you know, Put pieces together and tried to hold yeah. and, and shaped me, and you know, um, they did a great job, man. It, you know, I was extremely blessed and fortunate, um, and that's largely responsible for me pursuing so much more. Because seeing, I mean, where I came from, even at seven, man, or six or seven, you know, I it did didn't seem more stuff that, you know, probably more thirteen or fourteen years hadn't done. You yeah. Know? So it was. Yeah. You know. And, and then a lot of that didn't, you know, it didn't leave me. I still got into trouble even, <laughs> you know, in, in, a, in a better, all-around, more more stable environment. I was still that kid. I was still from, you know, it took a long time. Right. But actually, right. I, I don't think it'll, it'll ever, so I'll ever stop being that kid to that degree. But I, don't, I realize I don't have to always be that kid. As, as a teenager, I felt I still had to do those things. So I still got into a lot of trouble, you know, Um uh, fortunately, um, I went to Circle, and fortunately, I was at a school called Copernicus, which was filled with a lot of other kids who had been foster kids who were living in systems, and there were teachers who knew knew the type of environment they were in. We, we were very fortunate in that because there was a sense of communities in the 60s, 70s, and 80s that was, and I'm pretty sure it's still yes. there. I had no schools. Um, yes. And so then from there, I went to CVS. And that that was different, but it was a vocational school. So I I, I got a trade, and um, I was able to work after school. So I, that, that stopped me in a lot of trouble. They had a ICE program, which which gave you a job after you got out of school. So that kept me out of a lot of trouble. I stayed busy. Wow. Kept working. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so that's then, um, yeah, I didn't get any more. Uh, probably didn't get any to legal trouble. So I was like probably any, any more legal trouble about nineteen. Then mm-hmm. I got into a little. Yeah, I got into a little trouble then. And then um, I went to Circle. I got into uh, U of I. Now, what exactly is Circle, Tony? It was it was Circle, man, but now it's the University of Illinois, Chicago. And, okay. And um, they had an EAP program, an educational assistance program, which basically reached out to um, students who weren't 
uh, let's say stellar. <laughs> I think uh, my uh, my class rank was very low, but I um, did good on on standardized testing. So they were like, hey, you know, they gave me a chance, and of course I not of course, but I flunked out my first year, and then um, they sent me a letter like the next semester, or next quarter, we're on quarters in. They made me. I had to wait like maybe two or three quarters, and they sent a letter saying I was readmitted. And after being no school, no job, just just out there, when I went back to school, I had a different attitude. I wanted to make this work because I realized right. it was one of my few opportunities. So I right. went back, you know, um, you know, did the right thing, pledged the fraternity, uh, went to school, uh, got married, didn't graduate, uh, got married, raised a family. But I was so far into the my degree, my major in psychology, that I worked in the field. I was able to work in the field as if I had a degree because I only had like two classes to go. Right, but it would be it would be fifteen twenty years before I took those other two classes, and the only reason I took those two classes when was on the encouragement of our Dr. Alice at Chicago State. I was in the parking lot one day and I helped her. I don't know, put some air on her tire or something, and we were talking because I had been teaching classes up there through the Adult Continuing Education Program. I've been teaching creative writing classes, and she's like, you know, we'll do it. And I and by then, um, one day a preacher had been published, so people in the city knew me as a writer. And she's like, you know, you should really get a degree with what you're doing. I was like, no, nah, I'm trying to write the next New York Times bestseller. I don't really need no. <laughs> I'm trying to be on the New York. I am, no, I don't need to go to school. And she, um, then I saw her again, and she said, you know, we could probably pay, uh, give you a scholarship. A, uh, they didn't call it. They called it a stipend. And I was like, huh? You could pay me to go to school? <laughs> and she said, it depends, because you, you know, you're a published writer. You're in book number three. Blah 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 blah. And so then I listened. I slowed down, and I went back to school. I finished those two classes, and then I applied to the MFA program. I got in, and I went back, and I got the MFA um, all within three years. I finished undergrad, got the MFA within three years, and I started teaching and writing, and that's what I do now. I teach and write. Beautiful, beautiful. Uh, Tony, who were some of the authors? We mentioned, uh, you mentioned some authors back from back in the day, Gloria Naylor, Ralph Ellison, uh, throw in James Baldwin and others. Uh, who were some of the authors you enjoyed reading as a young person, and what were some of the books that affected you the most back in the day? Uh, definitely Walter Mosley, because uh, my first book was a mystery. Uh, Walter okay. Mosley was probably, and then it was this guy, uh, mm, Michael something, I can't think of his name. He's a British writer. He wrote Mysteries as well. I'm okay. sorry, I can't think of his name. Uh, um, Tony Morrison, without a doubt. Uh, Gloria Naylor. Eric Jerome Dickey. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, Dickey was uh, in Donald Goins. Dean Farr. Uh, well, probably my my biggest influence was probably uh, Dean Farr, Donald Goins, um, Walter Mosley, uh, Tony Morrison. Uh, those are probably my biggest, you know. Um, and then later on, once my palette was developed, I got into Leon Forrest, uh, Cyrus Coulter, James Baldwin, um, uh, Eugene uh, Bean. I want to say Weatherspoon. I don't know. But I even I like like now I read Colson Whitehead. I dig them. You know, uh, um, I still read. Uh, uh, I still read some Dickie. Not as much as I used to. Right, um, right. Yeah, so because right now I read a lot of nonfiction along with my fiction. Like I'm reading an old Walter Mosley piece now on Blind Faith. You know, I've never stopped reading Walter, you know, uh definitely. Do you ever read any Walter. John Oliver Killens? Yes. Well actually I've got his biography right now. 
Um, yeah, he, he's video. definitely. He's my mentor. Yeah. I used to go yeah, to school. Okay, cool. uh, he uh, he taught us writing in in Mega Evers College, man. What a man. Well, he John got, he, he was lucky because he was getting deals when other people weren't. And he's, I mean, he did. I think he did a version of Mandingo, didn't he? And it became yeah. the movie. Yeah. So he was getting. He was, uh, and he had another slave piece too. So he wrote. Uh, he was one of those fortunate people, man, that made money, best-selling paperback as well as hardback, and then academia. So you know, he was he was blessed. You know, I I remember in one of my classes I was writing and and I was writing the piece, but he says you you can can't only write what was going on. You have to give the big picture, not only in the hood but also in the city, also in the country, because my piece was about the '60s and all the movements that were going on at the time. And uh, yeah, he helped me a lot with one of my pieces, but. You know, uh, time is going so quickly. Let's talk social media, Tony. Um, what platforms are you on, and how are these platforms like Twitter or Facebook helping you in basically boosting your brand? Hmm. You know, I like Facebook, and I like Twitter, and I like LinkedIn. Um, I they uh, they work, but sometimes. The, the market is so saturated, man. That yes. I think people yes. sometimes get, um, you know, they just get flooded with with writers. You know, everybody, you know, has written a book, and on Facebook, people have written thousands of books. But it's still, I, but yet still, I still have people who I reach that way, and so I, you know, I, I love it. But I, I'm trying to find something just a little bit different that I could, and I don't know what it is yet. But I think Facebook and Twitter have been. Uh, instrumental to keeping my name out there and keeping me current because people forget writers. You know, people yeah. forget writers. Writers are not because the, as a writer you're competing with movies, uh, TV, because leisure time. People read leisurely during their leisure time. Everybody's not a dedicated reader, so you're competing. You're trying to grab some a piece of someone's leisure time. Right. So that that, that and, and that's a hard thing. You know. To, to try to always do. So I've got to figure out new ways to be out there to get new readers. Because I, I think once, I'm fortunate in the fact that once a person reads me, they always try to read another Tony Lindsay book, which is a blessing. And I know that. So I don't want, I try not to lose. Because it's funny, because when I first came out with One Day a Preacher and then One Day a Lawyer, I had these mystery readers. And then I came out and I hit them with, um, no, it was One Day a Preacher. And I got mystery fans, but then I hit them with um, Prayer of Prey, which which became Street Possession, and I scared tons of writers away, tons of readers away, because I had this devil worshiping scene in there. And so, but then they came back with One Dead Lawyer, and but then I wrote Chasing It, protagonist with a drag queen, and it was hardcore street lit, had a parental advisory sticker. So I gained some readers and lost some readers. So my career has been like that. I get new readers, I lose readers, and then people come back, they try me again, they're like, okay. Um, the piece I'm working on now I think will bring back a lot of uh, readers that I may have lost because, I mean, I like writing street lit. I write like mysteries. I like writing young adult. You know, I've written a chick lit piece, Urban Affair. So I, right, I'm all right. over, you know. So, you know, and I don't – and and, and I, I do that because I thought it would, you know, I like writing. So I write different genres. And I was thinking – I didn't think anybody would be insulted, but I lost some readers with chasing it, you know. But then I wrote More Boy Than Girl, which is a story of a – a female pimp, and you know I gained some readers, 
you know. Um, so, you know, it is what it is. I just keep writing. <laughs> you know, I just and, and that's it. Keep writing. Also keep reaching and, and keep growing as a writer, you know, and, and mm-hmm. that's exactly what it sounds like you're doing. So, Tony, in closing, um, reading, get, getting the young men, especially the young men, to, to read. Um, you talk about coming out of Chicago, and um, I talked to a, a lady who was doing social work in Chicago, and she talked about how hard it is to get the young men to read. You know, we talked about how they're calling Chicago Chirac now with all the violence and everything. What do you think is the best way to get young men of color to open up a book and read it? Uh, probably give them a challenge. Hey, can you read this? Or just give it to them. Put it in their hands and say, hey, read this. I give away a lot of books, you know, and uh, I say, hey, read this. And sometimes they read it, sometimes they don't. Sometimes I give it to them, and I'll see it on the table somewhere after I gave it to them. Uh, more times I don't, though. You know, um, a kid who reads is going to read regardless of what they're doing. You know, a kid who reads will read in jail. A kid who reads will read on the bus with a pistol in his backpack. You know, um, a kid who reads will read, but the thing is to make is to get that kid early enough to get them reading. You right. Know, that's why I think uh, young adult literature is important. I think teen literature is important. I think child literature is important. You know, uh, if it wasn't for those Nancy Drew mysteries, even as a male, I was reading Nancy Drew mysteries because they were right. good. Right. I was reading the Hardy Boys. I was reading, you know, because they were good. You know, these were books that. And and we had a librarian that put the books in our hand and told us to read. I think that's the thing. Teachers have to tell kids to read. And, you know, I'm not trying to put it on teachers, but kids have to be told to read. You know, uh, librarian, our, when I was in, at Copernicus, we had a librarian who came into the class and gave us books. I don't know if mm-hmm. they still do that, you know. Yeah, that's, that's, that's important. That's big. The librarian wasn't a person who was off in the corner somewhere. They were they were an active part of the school system. They came in. Hey, well, oh, oh yeah, Tony likes Nancy Drew. Here's a new. He likes Agatha Christie. Here's a new Agatha Christie for Tony. That's what she right. did. Now I don't know if they still do that, but I was fortunate enough when I was a kid. That's what the librarians did. They knew what you liked. You know that was the that was their function. I don't know if they even have budget for librarians in schools anymore, but that was a lib. You know. She was just more than a lady with glasses. You know, she was a lady that knew me and knew what I like to read. Understood. Tony, give out any contact information, um, how people can contact you, order your book, or, or just uh, contact you about advice or whatever. Uh, give out any website, any blog okay. or Twitter handle or whatever. Uh, sure. I'm at Tony Lindsay, T-O-N-Y-L-I-N-Z-A, T-O-N-Y-L-I-N-Z-A at Twitter. And on Facebook, it's, I think if you put in Tony Lindsay Writer, you'll hit me, or Tony Lindsay Chicago. Um, my uh, email address is Tony, and then L-I-N-D-S-A-Y, 7045 at sbcglobal.net. And you can go for com. It's hyphen com, and that's my website. This has been the Funky Writers Show with me, author, publisher, Robert Batista. I'm at at author R. Batista on Twitter. You can find my ebooks on smashwords.com and my novels on amazon.com. Look for my new novel, the sequel to my seminal masterpiece, Brooklyn Story, called Naked in the Jungle, coming in the fall of 2015. 
My guest has been a huge force in the art of storytelling, parenting, and manhood. His name is Tony Lindsay, and his phenomenal book is called Almost Grown. Thank you so much, Tony, for being a guest on the Funky Writer Show. Thanks for having me, Robert. It was a blast. It's been fun, man. It was great. Later. Bye-bye.